Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for our uh, Capitol Hill briefing titled, How Much Should Medicare Pay for Drugs? My name is Jeff Vanderslice, and I am a director of government uh, and external affairs at the Cato Institute, a public policy research organization uh, dedicated to the principles of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Today's topic of discussion is particularly relevant uh, given that President Trump, Speaker Pelosi, and many others in Congress, including uh, folks on both sides of the aisle, uh, have identified tackling prescription drug prices as among their top pro policy priorities in 2019. Uh, with us today to talk about this issue are two of Cato's policy scholars, Michael Cannon and Peter Van Doren. Uh, Michael Cannon is Cato's Director of Health Policy Studies. He is a prolific writer whose work has appeared in numerous publications from uh, periodicals such as the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times to academic journals such as uh, the Harvard Health Policy Review and the Yale Journal of Health Policy, Law, and Ethics. He is also the co-editor of Replacing Obamacare, the Cato Institute on Health Policy Reform, and co-author of healthy competition, what's holding back healthcare and how to free it. Cannon holds a BA from the University of Virginia and an MA in economics and a JM in law and economics from George Mason University. Uh, up after that will be uh, Peter Van Doren, who is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and the editor of the quarterly journal Regulation. He is taught at Princeton, Yale, and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. From 1987 to 1988, he was the postdoctoral fellow in political economy at Carnegie Mellon University. His writing has been published in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Journal of Commerce, and the New York Post. Uh, Van Doren has also appeared on CNN, CNBC, Fox News Channel, and Voice of America. Uh, he received his bachelor's degree from MIT and both his master's and doctorate from Yale University. Um, for those of you uh, who noticed, there are copies of Overcharged on the table out front. If we ran out, uh, or if you otherwise don't want to lug it around, we're happy to deliver a copy to your office if you want to uh, contact us after the briefing. Um, and also, I understand that an article on the topic of biosimilars will appear in this summer's edition of Regulation. Uh, and so with that, we'll turn things over to Michael. Thanks, Jeff, and thanks to all of you for coming. Um, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, drug pricing in general. Uh, this this event was uh, sort of uh, came about as a response to a proposal by the Trump administration and the debate that that uh, proposal has triggered. But, but uh, so, of necessity, our discussion today is going to be fairly narrowly focused. But uh, Overcharged, the Cato Institute's latest book on health policy, as Jeff said, is available for you outside, or we can deliver to you a hard copy uh, to your offices, or an electronic copy if you'd rather read it on an e-reader. And Overcharged uh, has a lot more information about drug pricing and, and what to do about it. But as uh, as I mentioned, uh, we're going to be talking today, uh, or our, our discussion today is prompted by a proposal by the Trump administration uh, that will affect the prices that Medicare pays for drugs in the um, in, uh, in in Part B, or what we call Medicare Part B drugs. These are drugs that are administered in a physician's office. They could be oncology drugs or or what have you. 
And the Trump administration uh, has uh, proposed to change the way the Medicare uh, pays for or, or comes up with the prices for those drugs. Currently, Medicare pays 106% of the average sales price of these drugs. And the Trump administration, uh, the average sale price in the United States, the Trump administration wants to fold in prices uh, from prices pay in other countries into that average calculation. And uh, that sparked a lot of controversy and criticism, particularly from, from uh, two groups, the pharmaceutical industry and a lot of conservative groups uh, who are sort of uh, uh, striking some of the same notes. Now, the reason that the Trump administration uh, proposed, uh, made this proposal is that uh, prices for these sorts of drugs are higher in the United States, uh, which is tends to be true of, of most drugs. These uh, prices are higher in the United States uh, than, the, uh, than in other countries. A study by HHS found that uh, of 27 drugs studied, the US prices uh, for uh, these sorts of drugs were higher than the average uh, for the other uh, 26 nations. Uh, I'm sorry, for the other nations that were in this study. It wasn't 26, it was 27 drugs. And uh, the US prices for Part B drugs were on average uh, 80% higher than the prices uh, paid in other countries. And we had the highest price for 19 of those 27 drugs. And HHS calculated that if we incorporated those uh, foreign prices into the average sales price calculation, Medicare would save about $8 billion per year on these drugs. Okay, so that's the proposal. Uh, we'll have a little more to say about that. But before uh, I do that, I want to uh, cover uh, two things. Uh, one is, uh, how to think about what is the right price that society purchasers should be paying for prescription drugs. So what is, in general, the right price? What do we mean and what do economists mean when they talk about the right or the optimal price for drugs? And then uh, I, I want to talk about how to think about what is the right price that uh, Medicare should pay for drugs, so particularly if you are one of these uh, groups, uh, conservative groups uh, that are uh, of a conservative bent, how uh, might conservatives approach this? Because I think there's an inconsistency between uh, the principles that conservatives hold and their arguments uh, when it comes to this issue. So first, we're going to talk about how do we think about what is the right price uh, for prescription drugs? Well, if we start with uh, the, uh, the basic uh, set of tools that economists use, your supply and demand curves, and you make the assumptions of perfect competition that economists make in order to vastly simplify things, uh, well, then that leads to, uh, economists to the conclusion that if you want to maximize uh, social welfare, then what you want to do is you want to uh, have prices be whatever uh, price gets you uh, the optimal quantity of drugs, which is the quantity at which uh, uh, producing just one more unit of that drug will uh, result in uh, the uh, production of uh, a unit of drug where the cost is more than the benefit. If you remember from Econ 101, the demand curve here shows you the value of each additional unit of drugs. They're ordered by uh, the way that uh, buyers uh, value them. The mo uh, and so demand curves slope downward. Uh, for that reason, we have the highest valued unit over uh, on, the, on, on, the, uh, on the left. And uh, the value falls as we go to the right. The way uh, production of most things work is that at the margin, uh, supply costs increase, so our supply curve uh, is upward sloping. 
that is, uh, we also call that the marginal cost curve. And where those two intersect is where the marginal cost equals uh, margin, uh, the marginal cost of an additional unit of, uh, of a, a drug or a widget or what have you is equal to the marginal value. And that's the point at which if you produced even one more unit of that product, you'd get a social loss because the cost the marginal cost would be higher than the marginal value. But if you're producing less than that, well, you want to increase production. And the ideal, uh, until you get to that point, and the ideal price is whatever price gets you to that point where supply and demand intersect, because that's the optimal quantity of whatever, of whatever stuff you're trying to produce. OK, and it's important to note uh, that, uh, that markets never uh, almost never uh, really hit that ideal price, that, that, that P1 that we've got up here, where the price that gives you the exact optimal quantity of a good. But the nice thing about market prices is there's incentives for everyone always to push the price in that direction. So oftentimes the price is too high, oftentimes it's too low, but markets tend to self-correct. And so they're always pushing in that direction. Okay, so that's, uh, that's what economists say when you ask them what's the ideal price for something. They will say, well, it's where the price, uh, whatever price gets you to the point where supply, uh, where the uh, supply and demand curves intersect. Okay, uh, but there's a lot of assumptions baked into uh, a lot of simplifying assumptions baked into your uh, your standard supply and demand graph, and one of those assumptions is that all of the all of the value and all of the costs of whatever economic activity or transaction you're talking about are baked into that price. So they're all priced. There's no externalities, either positive or negative. No costs or benefits that are uh, uh, that befall someone who's not a party to that transaction and therefore aren't included in the price. Uh, that's one of the assumptions of perfect competition. There's, there's, there's no externalities. But, what, uh, but drugs don't really fit this model. Drugs don't fit this model, uh, particularly when we're talking about uh, new drugs, because, uh, uh, because uh, when you're talking about new drugs, the, uh, a large part of what you need to pay for in order to produce new drugs is something that has positive externalities, or what we call public goods characteristics, okay? And that is the information that goes into uh, the information produced by the research and development of that new drug. So if you uh, create a cure for hepatitis C, uh, and they have, it's called Tavaldi, then developing that cure, in the process of developing that cure, you've not only created a molecule that'll, that'll do this, you've created the information about, hey, this molecule does, uh, will, will cure hep C in 90, 95% of cases. And that information can be used by someone who's not buying that pill, okay? And we can, we can talk about patents in a moment, but for the moment, uh, if we think about the uh, information that's produced by that, the investment in, in that pill, <clears throat> uh, the investment that goes into the, uh, producing that pill, uh, we can think about uh, the, uh, that pill as having positive externalities so that uh, we don't so that normal market forces don't give us the optimal amount of prescription drugs. And the reason for that is if you look at this graph and you look at Q1, uh, uh, the quantity, um, uh, the optimal quantity if you had um, the uh, conditions of perfect competition in place. Um, imagine, uh, or never mind that, let's, let's look at the, the demand curve that, that we had before uh, as our willingness to pay curve, okay? Even though the, the information that is produced in the research and development of that pill has public goods characteristics, even though people can use that information even if they don't buy the pill, 
some people will still be willing to pay for that pill and pay for the, the, the cost of developing that pill, you know, pay, for the, pay for all the R&D costs. We can draw a curve then, a demand curve, that we will call the willingness to pay curve, and that's that lower demand curve right there, all right? So some people will be willing to pay for that pill, willing to pay for the information that, uh, or the cost of generating the information uh, that's, that's embodied in that pill, but, uh, but because many people will prefer to free ride, that willingness to pay curve, it doesn't, or let me back up, that willingness to pay curve doesn't actually capture all of the social value. Some people will be willing to free ride, and uh, those people will derive uh, benefit from uh, those, uh, uh, those investments that uh, those who are willing to pay made in generating that information. And so we need another demand curve. This, this, this demand curve we can call the total social value curve or the marginal social value curve. And that's to the right of the willingness to pay curve because it shows that uh, when you invest in uh, producing pharmaceuticals such that you get this quantity of drug innovation, uh, yes, people will, uh, some people will be willing to pay for that, but others who are not willing to pay for it will still be deriving value from it. They'll, they're, you can call them free riders. And the problem here is that the problem here is that you're not getting to the optimal, when you have a positive externality like this, you're not getting to the socially optimal level of, uh, of, of uh, drug production. The reason for that is if people are only willing to pay, uh, if, if uh, some people are going to free ride, then the uh, willingness to pay of the remaining consumers will only get you to Q1. The optimal uh, level of drug production here is actually Q2 where the, uh, the supply curve intersects with the total social value curve. But you're not gonna get there as long as people are willing to free ride, okay? The important insight here is, is not just that, uh, that, that drugs have these uh, uh, public goods characteristics, that they have these positive externalities, or that markets will uh, provide uh, uh, a suboptimal level of uh, pharmaceutical innovation. Uh, because of this uh, free rider problem. Uh, for purposes of, uh, uh, of drug pricing and answering the question, what is the optimal price that we should be paying for drugs? It's important to remember that it is P2 and not higher than P2. And the reason for that is there is such a thing as too much innovation in drugs. There's a point at which if you raise the price higher than P2, you will again be getting investments in uh, pharmaceutical R&D and investments in the production of new drugs that out, whose costs outweigh the benefits. So it's not the case that uh, something that increases the price that we pay for prescription drugs and therefore creates greater incentives for pharmaceutical innovation is always a good thing. If that were always a good thing, then we would invest 100% of GDP in pharmaceutical R&D, and you would have, we would have no money left over for the food that you're eating or the microphone that I'm talking into or the snazzy PowerPoint presentation my research assistant put together. But we don't do that because we recognize that there's a point at which pharmaceutical research and de development has costs that exceed the benefits. Okay, so the way to think about what is the right price that we should be paying for drugs is it should be whatever gets us to that point where, uh, the mar where marginal cost equals total social value, okay? And there is a point at which, uh, or beyond which, uh, we, uh, the, the cost of, of pharmaceutical R&D exceeds the benefits. And so, um, 
There's another point that I wanted to make about Medicare right there, but it's escaping me. I'm sure it'll come back to me. Okay, so um, how should we think about, uh, oh, and it, there's uh, a lot of dissatisfaction about uh, the, the prices that Americans pay for drugs. There is a lot of reason for that dissatisfaction. This fella, uh, uh, Martin Shkreli, who's called the most punchable face in America, uh, sort of embodies the frustration that, uh, that a lot of uh, consumers uh, and policymakers have about drug prices in this country, and has spurred a lot of proposals to, um, and that frustration spurred a lot of proposals to uh, reduce drug prices. One of them is the proposal by the Trump administration uh, to uh, tie the prices that Medicare pays for Part B drugs to prices paid by uh, by other governments, or set or uh, by other governments, or paid by other governments. The Washington Post sort of uh, neatly summarized this proposal. They said this is uh, price setting is an unorthodox idea among Republicans, but the Trump administration has made a bold move by uh, limiting, uh, yeah, so uh, uh, trying to reduce those prices. Um, uh, and uh, they explained it uh, pretty much as I did. Uh, right now, it's based on uh, the Medicare Part B dr drug pricing uh, system ties those prices to um, to the average sale price in the United States, and the Trump administration would tie it to the average sale price uh, in the United States and other countries, which would have the effect of lowering the prices that Medicare pays for those drugs and saving, as I mentioned, about $8 billion a year. Okay, now, there's been opposition, as I mentioned, principally from two groups. Uh, the Washington Post quoted uh, the head of pharma, the drug companies, uh, or, or the, um, the brand name uh, drug companies uh, lobbying group here in Washington, uh, quoted him as saying that, uh, or quoted uh, pharma as saying that uh, this is akin to advancing a socialized system, and uh, the uh, Trump administration is trying to import uh, or impose foreign price controls in the United States. Okay, so that's a little, uh, uh, and, and you'll see that theme echoed in some of the ads you'll find on TV and in newspapers um, around the country, but mostly uh, along the Amtrak corridor, uh, uh, from conservative groups who are criticizing the Trump administration for importing foreign price controls, beca because that's how they describe um, uh, this proposal. The American Conservative Union has called this proposal price fixing in Medicare Part B. Okay, so, uh, this, doesn't, this criticism doesn't exactly make a lot of sense if you know uh, anything about price controls. Because what a price control is, anyone want to take a crack at defining what a price control is? Well, controlling the price, but how? Okay, a price control is when the government says to a buyers or sellers that you will set at this price, you will, you will uh, effectuate your economic transactions at this price, or at a price below this price, or at a price above this price, and if you don't, if you use some other price, well, we're gonna use some form of coercion against you. We're gonna fine you, uh, we will take your stuff, we may put you in jail. It is a threat by the government to use coercion against people who don't use the government set price, okay? It's impossible for the United States government to import into the United States the threat that a foreign country makes against its own citizens uh, that they will use coercion against their citizens unless uh, those, the, the, those citizens use the government-dictated price. It makes no sense to say that someone is importing a foreign price control. You can't do it. It's a ridiculous turn of phrase. Uh, that's not what's happening here. What is happening here is the Trump administration is using the prices that 
foreign governments set for the uh, drugs they'll buy or that they may use to control private economic transactions, and, and using those prices to come up with its own price. All that means is they've picked a number that exists somewhere out in uh, elsewhere in the world, and they're throwing that into the formula that Medicare is using to set its prices. It really doesn't matter if that is the price for drugs. It doesn't matter if it's the price for car tires. Uh, it's just a number, okay? So all we're all that the uh, the Trump administration is doing there is they're not really importing anything. The only thing they're taking from abroad is a number, not a price control. Uh, now those prices would have the effect of lowering. Uh, the prices that Medicare Part B pays for drugs, but that doesn't mean that they are that they are introducing price controls into uh, into Medicare Part B. That's because Medicare Part B already uses price controls. When the government says we're going to pay 106 percent of whatever the average sale price is, that is the government, that is Medicare, setting the price that it's going to pay. So we already have price fixing, price controls in the Medicare program. Uh, this was affirmed by none other than the Secretary of Health and Human Services, uh, who said not too long ago right now, we do set prices uh, for Part B drugs. It's just a really stupid price. The reason that pharma doesn't want, uh, doesn't like this proposal is pharma, they represent the people who make these drugs. And what this proposal would do is it would take the price that they're getting from the government from here and it would move it down to here. So these folks are going to make less money off of this. You can expect uh, them to oppose this proposal uh, because every dollar of wasteful uh, healthcare spending is a dollar of revenue to someone, and that someone always has a lobbyist. And uh, and so uh, you can also expect them to use arguments that they expect will resonate with certain uh, key uh, constituencies. And the argument they have chosen here is an argument against price controls because they expect that will resonate with um, with conservative groups and, uh, and a Republican administration. Uh, and that, I think, is why you see them making this argument and you see conservatives making this, uh, uh, echoing that argument made by pharma. But uh, there's a reason, uh, uh, there are reasons for conservatives to be very suspicious of these arguments. Uh, because if you think about it, uh, arguing against this proposal to bring down the prices that Medicare is paying kind of violates conservative principles. As I mentioned before, it would take the amount that, Mar that Medicare is paying from here down to here. It would save $8 billion per year. And yet we have, so it would reduce government spending, and yet we have all of these uh, conservative groups who purport to be fans of smaller government arguing against a proposal that would reduce government spending. The actual burden of government is not so much uh, is not so much how much the government collects in taxes in every any given year, it's government spending because even if you're running deficits, eventually someone's going to have to pay for that spending. So this is actually a proposal to shrink the size of government. So isn't it sort of strange? Isn't it sort of weird that we've got conservative groups out there who are not only making bad arguments against this proposal as if it's importing foreign price controls? It's not. They're, they're making arguments against a proposal, they're arguing against a proposal that would actually reduce government spending and do what they say that they are for. Now, it makes sense that they would resist the idea of price controls uh, at all, that they wouldn't want Medicare to be setting prices for drugs. Why? Because as I mentioned before, when you have a market system, uh, when you have a price system setting prices, it doesn't always, it almost never sets the right price, but it's always got forces pushing in that direction. When you've got a uh, government program setting prices, uh, it's, those prices are not self-correcting. They get out of whack and they stay out of whack forever. And sometimes they stay way too high and the people who benefit from that spend millions of dollars lobbying to keep them high. Uh, 
Uh, so it makes sense that conservatives would resist price controls, but resisting a change in how the government uh, sets those prices is not the same thing as resisting price controls. I want to suggest a way that conservatives might try to think about this, uh, uh, this proposal or, or uh, about how Medicare pays for prescription drugs. If you are a conservative and you would rather that Medicare or you would rather Medicare not be in the business of buying drugs, you would rather have market forces determine the prices for drugs, then really what you want to do is you would want to move people out of the Medicare program and into a, uh, into a, into a market where you, you have actual market forces setting the prices for drugs. Something closer to the Medicare Advantage program, I don't think that really gets you there. In overcharge, what David Hyman and Charlie Silver, our two Cato adjunct scholars, propose is turning Medicare into a social security-like system where instead of giving uh, seniors a package of benefits and saying, Here, here's your health insurance, and we're going to set the prices for all the, the stuff you get. Medicare instead just gives seniors a check, like the Social Security program does. Here's your Medicare check. If you're sicker, you're going to get a bigger check. If you have a low income, you're going to get a bigger check so that you can afford a basic package, a standard package of benefits. But whether you buy health insurance and how much health insurance you buy is going to be determined by you, not by the government. In that sort of a system, you would get market prices. Okay, so if you're a cons you would get market prices because consumers would be spending their own money, they'd be cost conscious, and uh, they would sometimes hire insurance companies to negotiate on their behalf, uh, prices on their behalf, but you would have a market system. If you're a conservative who wants that kind of a system setting prices, what should you do in this debate over the Medicare Part B drugs when, when the debate is, is really only over whether Medicare should set prices up here or down here? Well, uh, you might want to be in favor of that uh, proposal to re reduce the prices that Medicare pays, if only because it'll save taxpayers $8 billion. But there's another reason for you to want to do that, and that is that the lower the prices that Medicare sets for the uh, drugs and other goods and services that it buys, the more people are going to be dissatisfied with the Medicare program, and the more people will want some real reform that gives them more control over their health care, maybe through a subsidy that they control more, like, a, like Medicare checks. But uh, you'll be building political support for reforming Medicare in a way that lets you move toward a system where you do get, med where you do get um, uh, uh, the price mechanism setting prices uh, for prescription drugs rather than uh, uh, the government setting those prices. <coughs> and uh, you'll still have this problem when it comes to prescription drugs, but the way to deal with this problem is you, know, you can do that through patents or or, or uh, other things, uh, other uh, uh, policy levers that uh, can try to solve this, uh, this externalities problem and get you to the right quantity of drugs. But if you're a conservative, it, uh, I don't think it makes any sense for you to be arguing that uh, these proposals are importing foreign price controls or that uh, we should be uh, keeping Medicare spending high um, uh, because, um, because innovation. So uh, I'll stop there and let Peter go, and then I hope we'll have question, time for questions after. Thanks. <clears throat> All right. Now we're going to switch completely. Uh, my purpose in the program is to give you a brief review of the economics literature. So I've read thousand papers and I'm going to talk about sort of five or six of them that have struck me as papers that provide useful information that all of you should have to inform your office's discussion about what to do about all this stuff. 
So first, uh, and so there's an outline, but everything I'm going to say is a handout in your packet, and you can look at it. Uh, the first message I want to try to get across is that the anecdotes we hear about drug pricing and outrageous drug prices are anecdotes, that the, the, the data, the population of data about drugs suggests a, a fairly different picture. The outline heading one says that drug, retail drug prices went up very little in the, the last year we have data for, which is 2017, four-tenths of one percent, and I give you the site uh, there at the end that you can look up. So don't, professors always say that policy should not be driven by anecdotes, and I'm trying to repeat that message for you. Um, but journalists think that anecdotes ought to drive policy, and that's the tension. So the uh, anecdotes about very high drug prices aren't very representative of the data, and I would urge you to tell your bosses that that is true. Now, the stylized facts, the, 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 the ones uh, two and three on the outline, it, the, I know these look like I'm some sort of spokesperson for pharma, but I'm not. These actually, the academics who've looked at this suggest that um, of the spending that we engage in for drugs, that farm is getting less of it over time, and the amount of time over which they get to recoup their R&D costs is going down over time. So if you're pharma, what, what's happening is you're being squeezed um, by the PBMs. And if you're a consumer, that's good news. So PBMs appear to be doing their job, even though everyone hates them. And uh, I would urge one, you to think about one thing from the economics literature that is very counterintuitive. The American answer for all problems is sunshine, right? Transparency for drug pricing is the current it girl. But believe it or not, if you take game theory seriously, and I do, the message is, is that secrecy actually helps competition. One of the ways, if you're in an oligopolistic industry, and sort of drugs are probably that, there's not pure competition, one way to keep track of what your rivals are doing if, if, is if they have to announce publicly what they're doing. And that actually probably doesn't help competition. So if you want to reference uh, the economist Barry Nailbuff, Avinash Dixit wrote a book a long time ago that tried to argue to thousands of econ and MBA students that um, secrecy actually is very useful for competition. Um, finally, in outline heading two, the most recent dissertation I've read is a guy named Fang at Harvard, and he does a nice difference in differences, regression, discontinuity design to show that how much prices for anti-cholesterol drugs have, have been driven down by PBM activity over time. The prices are, well, spending has gone down 15% and drug company profits have gone down by 25% and that's a, it's a very recent dissertation. The other author I've, uh, Joanna Shepard is someone you should get to know. She teaches law and economics at Emory and, and some of the sites on this first page of the outline are from her. I would urge you to read her papers. They're very uh, useful on the things I've been talking about. Second page. Generic markets are weird uh, in the sense that they're not many players and yet they don't seem to make any money. Okay, in other words, we have I think what I say, 40%, right? 40% of generic markets have monopolies, and yet there's no entry. 
So normally a Cato person would say, aha, the government's keeping out entry somehow, and some of my colleagues say that, which is the safety regulations and things like that make generic entry difficult. I'm kind of, I, I, I don't buy that argument. I'm thinking basically they're just not making any money, and the reason they're not making any money is because of the PBMs. So we have extracted all the surplus out of generic markets, and they're now on very thin margins, which means when a shock hits, when there's a plant shutdown, when there's a safety concern, it just, everything goes kablooey. And then entry's hard because there aren't any manufacturers out there just lying around who have plants that are certified for FDA safety reasons to make certain products. So, so generic markets are thin, and yet they're not making any money. It's kind of a, a very odd state of affairs. Um, Ernst Berndt from MIT, I um, read his work, and, and that's the paper I'm, I think you should read about that. Uh, all of you should become familiar with the difference between so-called small molecule traditional chemistry drugs and the new biologics. Most everything I'm talking about applies to the traditional drugs, but biologics are different. Um, the, Hatch-Waxman created a generic entry program for small molecule. We now have an equivalent program for biosimilars, but I don't want you to think that it's going to work as well. Um, there's articles in my journal, Regulation, by Henry Miller from Stanford. Uh, we're going to have an update on it in the summer issue that says, believe it or not, the very, very small differences in manufacturing techniques, very even scaling up if a branded manufacturer has a biologic and they scale up the product, um, they found some, the technical evaluations of the output have detected small differences. So what appears to be BS that's restricting competition actually probably has a scientific basis. As we shift more and more to biologics, the ability to have generics, generic competition, lower prices, is going to become increasingly difficult. So the odd thing about the current Medicare drug pricing controversy is we're probably all looking in the rearview mirror towards things that are going to be less important over time and not looking ahead to things that are going to be more important. All the price increases and things are basically coming from biologics and our ability to have competition for biologics seems to me, given what I've read, to be much less than we've ever had for small molecule drugs. Europe versus us, and I'll go back to what Michael was saying on R&D. Remember Econ 101, for those of you who took it, uh, what we've got here is the huge, in drugs, we've got a huge discrepancy between fixed costs and marginal costs for traditional small molecule drugs. It costs four cents to make the pill, it costs a gazillion dollars to get it to market. If we have just market forces and you have marginal cost pricing, then no one's going to pay for R&D. What are we going to do? One answer is patents and then patent maneuvering and patent games and patent struggles and right patent lengthening and you know all the stories and they're mostly true and the reason is because that's how we recoup fixed costs. Two other possibilities. One is even libertarians recognize, as Michael said, that knowledge has public good characteristics. So we could have publicly funded R&D. We could throw a lot more money out to NIH, and NIH could give it to folks to figure out what's going on. 
or we could have prizes, right? We could, the government could announce, and that's a, a big proposal in, in David Hyman's book. We could have a proposal that says, if you figure out stuff and you win the race, then you get a gazillion dollars, and that creates competition over the prize. Um, and then all drugs would then be priced at marginal cost, right? So we, we separate the game in which we figure out how to fund pub, uh, public goods and knowledge from the marginal cost pricing of drugs. So right now, between Europe and us, in, in the current world, everyone's playing a game in which no one wants to pay for fixed costs. And it looks like, for a variety of reasons, the United States is paying for fixed costs. And US politicians have noticed and want other people to pay for fixed costs. Think of defense spending, right? Trump wants other NATO partners to increase their defense spending for world public goods, and, they, and he wants us to decrease ours. And there's a liberal version of the, the same argument. Same thing in drugs, right? You could argue that other countries ought to pay more of the fixed costs of knowledge, and we ought to pay less. Fair enough. All economists have to say is that the recovery of fixed costs is is, is economically arbitrary with one exception, which is it, it, there's called the Ramsey pricing rule, right? You can price, the people who have the least elastic demand ought to pay most of the fixed costs, and that's how, what would occur in, in under market forces. But those pr forces probably would be correlated with income. So be cautious of policies that talk about reimportation as a solution to the, we pay too much and Europe pays too little or other countries pay too little. Because my own sense is that if we did allow reimportation, then there'd be R&D cost recovery with quantity limits through contract, which is we would limit, com companies would limit how much they sold to every country so that the game of taking from country A with very low prices and then reimporting back to the United States those would be outlawed by contract, and then we'd have all sorts of court fights about whether those contracts would be legal. But in the end, right, the meta discussion we ought to have is knowledge is a pure public good. How in heck can OECD countries figure out a way to burden share to pay for all this somehow through taxes or prizes or something? But it's just like NATO spending all over again, right, which is everyone wants to defect. Everyone wants someone else to pay for all this. and that game will continue long after I'm gone, I suspect. Um, geographic, right, so the, the last thing I want to talk about is just price discrimination across space. Um, there's outrage about drug prices that differ across space. So I just brought up some ordinary products that all of you ought to be aware. There's huge price discrepancies for almost everything you and I consume every day across space. In the AEJ micro journal that I just read, there was, I just happened to say, oh, this would be useful. It's an article on Home Depot and Lowe's pricing of drywall. And you'd say, what? Well, I give you the data and the outline. It's amazing, right? The prices across U.S. states for drywall vary by, by 100%. And um, I, what do I have? Lowe's has 79 different prices and Home Depot 93. <laughs> so stop you know whating about drug prices varying across space, because it turns out all prices for all the things we buy vary across space. So if we're against drug prices varying across states, then we need to ban coupons, right, for supermarkets. And Michael, I'm a, a jokester at Cato. Everyone knows I'm a coupon clipper. 
And uh, I obsess on Saturdays when I shop and I go to different markets for different things to save 50 cents, right? So if you want to make, if you want uniform prices, then you have to ban coupons in the Sunday paper. Um, but again, that arises in drugs. The problem arises because we've got to recoup fixed costs from somebody, and those fixed costs in drugs are large. But do you understand the same thing is true in Saturday shopping? Right? Supermarkets are playing a game in which they've got fixed costs. They've got lights. They've got heat. They've got stocking the shelf costs. They've got property taxes. And different people pay different amounts of those, right? At Costco, you pay a fixed price to enter the market. Then they have lower marginal costs for everyone. Safeway has absurdly high prices, but then extreme discounts. And if you use your little Safeway card, they have perfect price discrimination, right? They're gathering elasticity data. And if you do your Safeway card, do you know you have just for you pricing? So that means I get my Cheetos for $25 less than you do, only you don't know it, <laughs> because Safeway's giving all of us very different prices for these things, trying to price down the demand curve. Uh, Giant does the same thing to a certain extent. So try to push back in your offices against the, the notion that there's no price discrimination in other markets other than drugs. There's lots of price discrimination. And finally, finally, I didn't highlight this, but be wary of proposals that call for uh, uniform prices, right, to solve this price discrepancy across people. Every, everyone thinks that, oh, whatever France pays or whatever Peter pays, right, because I'm, I'm a hyper-marginal consumer in all markets, that if we make all prices the same, everyone will get the low price. But there's lots of evidence in the journals that what happens when we implement these kinds of policy proposals, that what happens is we end up with uniform prices at the high price, right? And this is certainly true. The most evidence is in gasoline markets, um, where uniform, right, their bills against zone pricing in gasoline markets. And I give you an example in my own town, in Germantown, where I live. The prices vary by 30 cents a gallon within a mile of each other, right where I live. And it's like, how's that possible? And the answer is, some people search and other people don't search. And there have been lots of models and good papers written on gasoline, which is when states pass bills that say don't have zone pricing, what happens is we end up at the uniform high price rather than the low price that everyone thought would occur. And I'll end there. Thank you. We do have some time for questions and discussion. Uh, does anybody have any? Yes, in the back of the room, please. And we, we, sorry, actually, we have a microphone for our online viewers so they can hear your question. Um, <laughs> they can't see me. I'm if, <laughs> if you could uh, please state your name and, uh, and, and affiliation and, I'm and your question, Evelyn please. Fortier with Senate Finance. I have a question. Um, you know, you're, you're drawing comparisons to other markets, grocery stores. Um, Drug companies argue that their prices have to remain high so they can recoup their R&D costs. But we subsidize them with a research and experimentation credit, right, a tax credit that, you know, a grocery store wouldn't get. And, um, you know, I'm not sure that the amount that they put into R&D is equivalent to what they're recouping. I mean, how analogous really is are these markets that you're, you know, comparing 
to drug well, pricing. If you're saying, was I arguing that we shouldn't touch all the money they get because there's, I wasn't making, I mean, I, I'm agreeing with Michael. Michael said earlier, right, that uh, the, the answer to the question of whether we have the right amount of innovation or not, the true answer is we don't know. And, we, and there aren't any articles in the literature that say how we would even figure that out. Um, the, I think that the more careful, so most of my arguments about how bad price competition is applied to the generic market, which is I think all the profits are gone there. On the big pharma R&D side, what I haven't seen is a big, probably because it's proprietary, is a differentiation of R&D into two components. How much is the actual chemistry, chemical engineering, biology side of things versus how much is clinical trials? Because certainly from a policy standpoint, we could differentiate what Michael called knowledge into two kinds of knowledge. One is literally how to make the thing, how to discover something. Then the second component is, if we give it to a bunch of people on average, will they die or not? And will they get better? And then what are, what are all those side effects like? Trials are expensive. And, um, but what I don't know, and maybe do any of you in the I mean, I've never seen a breakdown of R&D into the kind of internal R&D cost, chemistry, biology, versus the trial part. My sense is the trial part is large. It may be more than half. Um, I had something to add, but can we put the uh, PowerPoint back up because I'd like to uh, uh, have a look at yeah this screen again. So it's a good question, and I think um, the the answer or, or one part of the answer is uh, if there's an analog that we can uh, with what we did with the demand curves here uh, uh, that we can do with the supply curves. You said well. So oftentimes these pharmaceutical companies are getting an R&D tax credit or maybe NIH did a lot of the research that went into the development of a particular drug. And, and I think in that case, then the cost of, um, uh, you need a separate supply curve that one is uh, going to be the total social cost, which would include the cost of the pharmaceutical companies plus the cost of the taxpayer uh, of, develop, of you know, whatever the government is doing to encourage that development. Um, but then you need a separate supply curve that the uh, pharmaceutical companies face, which is the marginal cost to them of producing a different unit uh, or an additional unit of something. That would actually be to the left of the, uh, of the total social cost curve. So we would have a, a, a supply curve that's higher than, um, than the, uh, than the uh, uh, total social cost curve. And that, and the pharmaceutical companies would sort of be following that curve to set the prices. And yeah, the prices would end up higher than they should be, and quantity would be lower than, than maybe it should be. And I think that's where uh, a lot of the dissatisfaction with these prices stems from. Um, and I'm not sure that the, there really is a solution to that other than uh, the source of solutions that we use to try to solve the problem of externalities. And, and the, the piece that I've uh, uh, that I, I spaced on and forgot to mention when I, uh, during my part of the presentation is that uh, Peter, Peter mentioned it and reminded me of it, it is that we have no way of knowing what the optimal quantity of, uh, of pharmaceutical R&D is, Q2 here. We have no way of knowing that. 
Uh, so when policymakers are trying to approximate that with patents, you know, that, that, ex that give marketing exclusivity to the innovators, um, really what they're trying to do with patents is they're trying to get from Q1 to Q2. But we have no, way, no idea where Q2 is. We may be overshooting it. We may be undershooting it. Uh, as Peter says, uh, we don't even know if there is a good way of finding out uh, what, what Q2 is. Uh, I think that, that matters for this debate over uh, Part B drugs because uh, when, when opponents of this, uh, uh, the Trump administration's proposal says, well, if you cut back on, far, uh, on, on these prices, then you'll get less pharmaceutical R&D and you'll get less innovation. And that's true. Uh, but they're always assuming that that's always, that, that is bad, that it's per se bad. We could be way out beyond Q2 and getting excessive innovation, in which case reducing innovation would be a good thing. Uh, we don't know. I think in order to make the innovation argument, you need to be, you, you, you need to have some evidence that, that suggests that we have the, we are below Q2 right now. We're at a suboptimal level of pharmaceutical uh, uh, innovation, um, and uh, I don't hear that from anybody uh, on the uh, 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 among the opponents of this proposal. And uh, Secretary Azar has been kind of dismissive of this argument because you know he used to be an Eli Lilly executive, and he says he's tired of the same old talking points about innovation. What he's actually getting at, I think, is the problem or the uh, the, the challenge that I'm talking about. We don't know what the optimal level of innovation mm -hmm. is, and so it's not sufficient just to say this would give us less. You have to show that we're get, getting too little already. I'm thinking on the fly here. I'll throw in one more thing, which is you know. Um, there's cost per life saved literature in economics, and there's uh, quality adjusted life year expenditure analysis in economics. So if the full cost of a drug, including R&D, ends up being more than $100,000 per quality adjusted life year, then we're probably spending too much looking backwards. Right? That was innovation that wasn't worth it. And if we're spending, Kip Fiscusi's latest estimate right, is $10 million per statistical life saved, if we're spending more than that when you look at full cost of R&D plus marginal cost pricing for a drug, then that would suggest that, that we're too much innovation, too much spending on drugs. So it's, there are some ways we can kind of figure it out. And it's not that a life is worth less than $10 million or anything like that. It's that you, you, you could be saving more lives if you spent that money on something else. Uh, yes, toward the back of the room. So uh, one of the arguments uh, to, you know, that people have uh, to, you know, lower costs for uh, prescription drugs is to have more, more uh, competition. So what do you think that Congress needs to do to, like, address that? Do you think that, like, addressing the issue of pay for delay, for example, uh, do you think that that would be a good way to move forward with that? I think anything you can do that will speed generics to market will help. So. Um, uh, I think the, the administration has proposed that it's begun implementing at FDA uh, 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 a strategy of t trying to get the ANDAs, the abbreviated new drug applications, uh, f uh, for generics that would compete with drugs that have seen big price spikes, getting those approved faster. So, so that's one thing. Uh, just you know, reducing the burden of an ANDA, of getting an ANDA approval across the board, reducing the burden of getting an NDA approved, um, uh, and uh, doing things like preventing evergreening and pay for delay would help. I think that those, you have to see those in the context of 
uh, of what I described about we don't know what the right amount of innovation is. You get rid of those. those the ways that you can abuse the patent system are sort of uh, baked into the cake. Every patent system is going to be prone to abuse. And, um, and as an economist, you know, what, those are important because what they do is they, func they effectively extend the patent life. And that might bring you closer to Q2. Or it might put you past Q2. We don't really know. What, it, what they will do is they, uh, you have to recognize the cost of those proposals, even though you'll get lower prices if you reduce those abuses. The cost is you might get less innovation. Um, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing because we don't know where Q2 is, but that's something you need to keep in mind. As I said in my remarks, uh, I think if you're in the generic market, we have intense competition and the Congress with the Generic User Fee Act, right? It's, so we're, we're pumping lots of money into getting generics. The only thing that's stopping it are the patent games that, that Michael's talking about. But as we shift more and more into biologics, I think that that's a whole different ballgame. And I think, we're, at least the articles I've read and the articles that are in my journal suggest that biosimilar competition will be very different than and not look at all like current small molecule generic competition. And biologic competition will be much, much more difficult and will not bring the cost savings that we get under the small molecule competition. So that's worrisome to me um, in the sense that the, 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 if the public wants to be subsidized for access to these biologics, then we may have to pay for it um, because the possibility of competition will be not very good. And there are probably a, a number of other, a couple other things that you could do in in um, in overcharge the authors, and I've advocated this too. Uh, talk about putting more of the money that we spend on healthcare in the hands of consumers, and when they exert more price competition or, or more cost consciousness, we'll get more price competition. With regard to generics, uh, changing the ANDAs and getting them approved faster isn't the only thing you can do. There, you also have to get a facility approved by the FDA to produce a generic drug. And uh, that Ernst Burnt article that uh, Peter mentioned uh, talks about the generics market as being largely a single supplier market for individual drugs with very thin margins, uh, which suggests that maybe there are uh, some high barriers to entry that, you know, there are still margins there often, often there are not, and you, you, we see shortages. But uh, that suggests that maybe thing, if there's anything you can do to reduce the burden of getting FDA approval to manufacture uh, generics, then to get to become an approved uh, generics manufacturing facility, then that also could help uh, increase competition and bring down prices more. Okay, we have time for one more quick question, and I promised it would go to this gentleman in the front uh, front row up here. Uh, Gavin Profit, House Republican Study Committee. Uh, you mentioned bringing more generics to the market to increase competition, but one thing that we've seen, and I think it's touched on and overcharged a little bit, is that um, even though these generics go to the market, um, it's almost like they set their price sometimes at the same high price as the brand name drugs, like they're working almost in lockstep with each other. So what can the Congress do to help prevent that from happening and to help prevent uh, these pharmaceutical companies from raising their prices at near the same time. Um, there's the, what, the first six-month game? Is that well, there's what that. you're talking about? You, you, you want to talk about no, that? No. Well, um, 
the that's, that's part of pay for delay is that the first generic to successfully challenge a patent on a drug gets eight, 180 days of market exclusivity as the first generic. During that period, you know, they have an incentive to, they don't have the, an incentive to, to lower the price all the way to marginal cost. They've got an incentive to do what the brand name manufacturer was doing, which is price discriminate. Set the price, you know, act as a quasi-monopolist, set the price as high as they can or uh, set the price wherever they need to, to maximize revenue, not access. Um, but in Overcharge, actually David Hyman and Charlie Silver talk about a similar game that uh, brand name manufacturers can play, and they talk about what has happened with Viagra and Cialis, and how, it, or is it Cialis? And how, even though Cialis is a competitor for, uh, of Viagra, they, they do pretty much the same thing. Uh, you would expect a competition between these two drugs. Once the second drug came on the market, the price for Viagra would come down as they were competing with each other, but that's not what happened. Instead of the prices coming down when the two, uh, when Cialis came on the market, the price for Viagra went up and the price for Cialis went up. They went up in lockstep together. The authors call it erectile pricing. <laughs> the prices just kept going up, in, uh, which is the opposite of what we should expect would happen. And the reason they give for this is uh, they, they think that these uh, manufacturers were colluding uh, not explicitly, uh, they just know that there's a game, uh, and if, uh, if they keep playing this game, then, then both companies will become wealthy. Uh, they play this game where they keep increasing the price because they know that consumers are so cost unconscious that they can't capture market share by lowering their prices. And that gets back to what I mentioned before. If you, uh, if you give consumers the money that all these third parties are spending on their behalf, make them more cost conscious, then you can make a real dent in, uh, in, in, in drug prices, partly by uh, defeating these sorts of games. And, and giving some manufacturers, all manufacturers, the incentive to reduce prices in order to increase their market share in a way they just can't when you have excessive third party payment. And that concludes today's briefing. Thank you all for coming and let's thank our two speakers for being here today. <laughs>